Greetings. Hello and welcome. The archival recording you are about to hear was sourced from live streaming audio in an effort to expand content reach. I have decided to repurpose the show as an audio podcast. I have done my best to remaster the audio quality for your ears, but I have chosen to leave its content and length unedited. So you may hear reference to visual cues not described in said audio. If you'd like to see the original live streaming video podcast this recording comes from, please head over to youtube.com slash C slash from us films, LLC, or just search from us F R U M E S S. And don't forget to like share and subscribe audio from episode to episode will also vary in quality. Sorry about that. Thank you for tuning in and listening, Jeff Frummis. Don't let me down. Don't let me down. Don't let me down. Don't let me down. Nobody ever. Hi, welcome to the show. We're talking Beatles tonight. I saw this article. I don't know. You know, it's funny. Uh, Some people have said, oh no, Daily Mail, terrible. You know, these are all British British, uh, news, news sites. And I've had Brits go, oh no, don't, don't, that one's too, you know, conservative. This one's, oh, this one's no good either. I don't know which one this is. This is The Guardian. Is The Guardian good? Is it bad? I don't know. I liked the cut of the jib of the article, so I'm going with it. So, I hope it's to your liking, and if it's not, I'm very sorry about that. But this is just, this is just what we're, this this is just what we're dealing with. So you got to learn how to roll with the punches. I'm about to sneeze. Been sneezing all day. It's terrible. Oh, maybe it's going to pass. Maybe it's going to pass. Here, let's get our little Chrome tab out. This is from The Guardian. And it's called... Let's see if it's going to automatically load for us. Boom, there she is. There she blows. Beatles on the Brink. How Peter Jackson pieced together the Fab Four's last days. Of course, it's not going to show when I want it to show. There it is. So there we are. Um, The director's new documentary weaves together hours of unseen footage to dispel many myths about the band's final months. John Harris, who was involved in the project, tells the inside story. So here's my issue with this, I you know this is actually a follow-up. We've covered this before on the channel. We we previously spoke about uh, this highly anticipated documentary that is supposed to be the. Um, anybody ever see Hedwig and the Angry Itch? You know you have the two pieces of the puzzle that fit together. Well, you know all the footage that was used in Let It Be, directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg, is not going to be in the Disney Plus Get Back three-part miniseries that's six hours long directed by Peter Jackson. It's going to instead show us six hours of stuff that was left on the cutting room floor to give us a more complete picture 
than say the negative one that's painted in Let It Be as well as various interviews from the Beatles and how we've generally been taught to understand this moment of history over the last 50 years. I mean, we're talking about 50 years of reinforcement about how this was a really dark, trying time for the Beatles is now being, you know, recontextualized as this really happy time, which really doesn't, you know, for anybody who is well-read on the Beatles, I don't think it's going gonna, it's gonna to bode well. There's just too many people who are around that, that really could speak as an authority on what things were like at that time. But John Harris, who was involved with the project, he's going to talk about this inside story. This is written by... Who is this written by? Is this written by John Harris himself? Huh. John Harris contributed this? I don't know. I don't know. Let's let's dive in, people. Let's dive in. On paper, the idea looked brilliant. In the opening weeks of January 1969, the Beatles were working up new songs for a television concert, for a televised concert, and being filmed as they did so. Where the event would have taken place was unclear, but as rehearsals at Twickenham Film Studios went on, one of their associates came up with the idea of traveling traveling to Libya. That's where my wife's family is from, from actually. Uh, North Libya. Uh, where they would perform in the remains of a famous amphitheater, part of an ancient Roman city called Sabratha. As the plan was discussed amid set designs and maps, one Wednesday afternoon, a new element was added. Why not invite a few hundred fans to join them on a specially charted ocean liner? Um, So, a little thing that we have to sort of put to rest. Oh, I see Logan is in the chat. What's up, Logan? Hi, Amy. Welcome to the chat. We're talking Beatles today. Going to have a, uh, an episode of, of, of the Streaming Evil Live show on Wednesday. We're going to do Fiend Mail, if I get back in time for my show. So, little little uh, contextualization here. The Beatles finish up one of the first double albums ever made in November of 1968. It comes out on November 22nd, 1968. It's the Mother Effin' White album. I mean, 30, I think it's 30 or 32 songs, you know, including essentially what would be the template of heavy metal. You know, a lot of people want to go on and on about the kinks, you really got me, all these songs that are like super heavy, there are, there's a lot of stuff there, especially with the uh, garage, uh, you know, garage rock stuff that's going on in the 60s, but I really don't think, and I've constantly challenged people to uh, prove me wrong. And so far, no one's been able to come up with a great example. People bring up Blue Cheer or Led Zeppelin, yada, yada, yada. But nobody can come up with an example. Is there anything heavier than Helter Skelter in 1968? You look at the the bass playing on Helter Skelter, and that's not Paul McCartney playing bass. That's John Lennon playing bass on Helter Skelter. And it's just so punk, man. It's so, the attitude, it's so heavy. It's such a heavy track. Um, 
that, just, this is a revolutionary album, the White Album. Huge. Monumental. You, you know, and you would think that that would be enough for the Beatles to... Re- they, they also released Hey Jude, which becomes their biggest selling single yet. I mean, it, like, selling three million copies at at the time, which is, like, kind of unheard of. Very, very hard thing to do, right? And the, here they are, like, you know, you think, okay, time to rest on our laurels a bit because, you know, we've just, like, dumped all these songs. But... You know, the Beatles don't tour anymore. They don't make movies, really, anymore. They haven't made a movie in, in quite some time since Magical Mystery Truth, if you can count that as a movie. Uh, they've become a studio-focused band. They don't do anything but just hang out in the studio. Abbey Road, none, nonetheless. So, you know, we just read about Twickenham Film Studios. This was a change of venue for the Beatles for the first time uh, as a group, as a band, you know. Um... This is called the breaking. I, I, you know, I titled this thing the, the the Beatles breaking up. It's the beginning of the end. There's something that is super important to take note of. The Beatles rift, the Beatles breaking up, actually starts a year and some change earlier. The, you, you know, it's part of the machine breaks down when the Beatles stop touring. But even still, with the Beatles not touring, they they drop Sgt. Pepper and, like, blow everybody away with that. Three days later after Sgt. Pepper drops, you have Jimmy Mother and Hendrix covering a track off of Sgt. Pepper. This is, you know, uh, in the days where, you know, this is the 60s, you know. It's just not, I don't know, it's just a lot harder to cover a song that just came out so soon. So, I mean, that's the kind of impact that Sgt. Pepper had. You know, you got one of the greatest guitarists in the world covering your song the same weekend it's released for his concert. Um, so they did do Pepper, but then Brian Epstein dies. He dies uh, very tragically. I won't get into the whole thing. But when he dies, that is the impetus for the Beatles to eventually break up. In a way, it was a death blow. It was a death blow that occurred three years before they actually would break up but it set in motion a bunch of events. First, starting with Paul McCartney and, you know, taking the reins from John Lennon and kind of becoming the leader of the band as John Lennon basically becomes an acid casualty, right? Uh, George Harrison starts writing more songs in the band. Um, they, they don't really know what to do. They're aimless. They're rudderless without Brian. Um... Then there's a civil war. The civil war doesn't happen until a little bit later, but th- th- they start to have there's a rift starts to develop in 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 the studio. It starts in 1968 with the White Album, which for many years people always kind of like, you know, consider the White Album based on a John Lennon interview from 1970 1971, where he's basically saying, you know, Sergeant pa- uh, the White Album is basically a solo album. It's four solo albums put together. We're all just sort of playing on each other's songs. We're not the Beatles anymore. It's not like Revolver. Revolver was when they were most cohesively the Beatles in 1966. And then, you know, things started to even sort of drift drift, drift apart, you know, from Sgt. Pepper on. Sgt. Pepper into the WP, which was Magical Mystery Tour, into uh, the Whiteout. Um, so, so things already started to get, you know, sort of rough during the White Album period. However, that too has also been recontextualized 
by this, you know, narrative that is forming. It's like Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr and the two widows, uh, Olivia and Yoko, are trying to spin the narrative about the, the, this, these negative periods of Beatle turmoil that would eventually lead to them splitting. And so, you know, 50 years after the White Album is released with these new remixes and looking at these studio outtakes, now the hot take is, oh no, it wasn't as bad as we all thought. And now they're trying to, I think, kind of really gaslight everybody with, with Let It Be and trying to make it seem like this is really happy time when in fact they are... They are splitting apart at the seams. You know, it was during the White Album when Ringo Starr quit the band. He quit the band and Paul would play on Back in the USSR and Dear Prudence. And then it was it was um, George's turn to quit the band during the Let It Be sessions, which started off as being called Get Back. So when when this whole opening paragraph that I'm taking really long to talk about, that's when the project was known as Get Back. When they're in Twickenham filming stuff and recording and just aimlessly capturing footage, they think it's going to be for a television program. It's not for a, 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 like a like a documentary feature yet, and it's called the Get Back Project. And the Get Back Project is to, we're going to get back to what we were, guys. We're going to start touring again. Paul wanted to play, you know, uh, live again and is pushing the guys after just completing this White Album, 30-something songs, this ginormous creative output. Let's go back in the studio and do it again. And everybody is exhausted. They are exhausted. There was some talk in December about, like, maybe we can do some live gigs where we basically do a residency, which makes a lot of sense for the Beatles. Just do a residency. Be you know, uh, stuck in one place and have the crowd come to you and you don't have to do the traveling bit, which is what always sort of like really rubbed them the wrong way. Um, Or even, you know, as it says here, invite a few hundred fans to join them on a specially chartered ocean liner. Now, what we're going to jump ahead a little bit. What happens after uh, this January of 1969 is a civil war really, really develops. And it stems from some of the resentment of Paul becoming the leader. As a result, there's a split, one versus three. You have Paul McCartney, who, you know, is basically the driving force from 1967 onward, in one corner, suggesting that they be represented and managed by Lee Eastman, Linda Eastman's father, Linda Eastman being Paul McCartney's wife, girlfriend and soon-to-be wife, right? And then on the other side, you have uh, John, George, and Ringo, who all want this guy Alan Klein to be their manager. And Alan Klein had worked with the Rolling Stones. And, uh, you know, I don't, I forget if the Rolling Stones had warned them or not, but, you know, he was a crook. He was just, he was a scum, he was a scumbag, uh, Alan Klein. He was a greedy scumbag, and he had sort of, you know, uh, done really bad, uh, d- done the Rolling Stones bad, you know. And but he had found a way into John Lennon's ear, and by extension Yoko Ono's ear, and then they went to George and Ringo and got into their ears as well. So you have this big business rift. So it's not creatively everything's okay, and that's how these guys still keep making music despite the fact that there's all this turmoil. 
They're able to do all this stuff. They're able to make Abbey Road because when they're in the studio, they're still, you know, there's still magic to be had. But outside of the studio and all these business meetings, it's just, it's the dregs. And it, 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 the rift becomes irreversible when John Lennon decides to leave in September of 1969. But he, the other guys beg him not to say anything because they're renegotiating their contracts with capital to get a a royalty rate raise. They were, I think, they were at 15 percent, and they wanted to get to 25 percent. So you know, it was this, it's this whole big sort of messy situation. But right in between that, during, you know, this really tense time when they're in this unfamiliar environment and, you know, Yoko Ono and, you know, everybody blames Yoko Ono and she is definitely partially to blame in the extent that part of what drove a bigger divide in that rift that we're talking about with Paul and John and everything is John finds a new creative partner in Yoko and Yoko gives John the backbone to sort of stand up and face Paul. You know, Paul always was kind of driving the bus from the back seat, and he didn't mind that John was the leader. But he was always just kind of like in the background, sort of, you know, pulling, you know, working John over in a way. You know, from all, everything that I've read, I've read a lot about the Beatles. A lot. I've listened to a lot of podcasts. This is where I'm getting my information from. So, um, but Yoko gave him the backbone to sort of like break away, to like sort of realize that 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 he's not a, doesn't have to just be a Beatle. He could be John Lennon, and that John Len- there was value in being John Lennon apart from the Beatles. So that's another factor. So all these factors are sort of working. And then in the middle of these sessions, these get back, let it be sessions, you know, at, you know at, people are not being very nice to Yoko, and George Harrison says some things to Yoko, and John Lennon and George Harrison get into a fist fight uh, during a lunch break, and John, uh, George Harrison quits the band. So they each took a turn quitting the band. It was Paul. When Paul finally left the band, that's when the band was really, truly over. But Ringo left first. Then George left. Both guys came back. Then John left and pretty much stayed out. But because he hadn't said anything, you know, John John was a hyperbolic speaker. You know, one minute he feels this way, and then the next minute he feels that way. His feelings were always temporary, and they kind of hoped that, like, maybe he'll snap out of it. So John never, like, came back, per se, but he didn't speak about leaving the Beatles. It was when Paul verbally spoke that the Beatles were done in May of 1970, you know, to push the release of McCartney. That's Paul's first solo effort. Those songs coming from these get-back sessions in other places um, being put out on Apple, um, that's when the band was truly no more. Uh, so that that's kind of like a little back history into what we're reading right now. And, you know, I've sort of painted a, a negative acerbic picture of, of what's going on, but, you know, P- Peter Jackson, probably at the behest of Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, whoever else, based on the footage that he's seen. And again, you know, if you're being captured on camera all the friggin' time, it's like, of course you're going to be on your best behavior. I don't think the the footage necessarily... It might be an accurate snapshot of what was creatively happening at the time, but there was definitely 
there was definitely turmoil, man. I mean, it's just it's a known thing. You don't have to be in the Beatles to confirm or not to confirm because everybody around the Beatles saw it. The, all the people in the inner circle were well aware of what was going on. Let's get back to this article. Over the previous few days, John Lennon had been quiet and withdrawn, but now he seemed to be brimming with enthusiasm. The ship, he said, because again, uh, a new element was added. Why not invite a few hundred fans to join them on a specially chartered ocean liner? Uh, the ship, he said, could be setting for a fi- uh, could be the setting for final dress rehearsals. He envi- envisaged the group timing uh, the group timing their set so it fell into a carefully picked musical moment just as the sun came up over the Mediterranean. If the four of them had been wondering how to present their performance, here was the most gloriously simple of answers: God's the gimmick. He enthused. Paul McCartney seemed just as keen. It does make it like an adventure, doesn't it? He said. Ringo Starr said he would rather do the show uh, in the UK, but did not rule out the trip. I'm not saying I'm not going, he offered, which sounded as if he was open to persuasion. But George Harrison was not interested. He feared being stuck with a bloody uh, big boatload of people for two weeks. The idea, George could be a real grumpy grump, man, a real grumpy grump. Uh, when Lennon suggested they could get a cruise liner for free from P&O, Harrison flatly pointed out, despite their celebrity, the Beatles had trouble even getting complimentary guitar apps. Now, where is all this coming from? The way that this writer writes, it comes from all the recorded you know, video and audio conversations at this time. All of this stuff, there's there's tons of, this is like probably one of the greatest documented periods of Beatledom out there. You know, there's not a lot of, of Beatles, there's a lot, a lot of Beatles stuff that is in the studio. I mean, there's, there's photographs and, you know, there's some, you know, uh, films, but this this is when they have, you know, cameras rolling all the time and Nagra, Nagra's the, you know, an analog uh, reel-to-reel going all the friggin' time. Among an array of other ideas for a concert venue, there was also mentions of the Royal Albert Hall, the Tate Gallery, an airport, an orphanage, and the House of Parliament. But whatever the suggested setting was, everything seemed to founder on a mixture of inertia logistical impossibility, and Harrison's implacable opposition. Indeed, two days after the longest conversation about Sabratha, Harrison would temporarily walk out of rehearsals with the deadpan line, this is a super famous iconic line, see you around the clubs. When he returned, it was seemingly on the basis that the idea of a spectacular live performance would be shelved. But there's no mention here of a fistfight between Lennon and Harrison, but it's like a known thing that happened. Uh, But this is interesting. Everything seemed to founder, I think he meant to say flounder, on a mixture of inertia and logistical impossibility. The Beatles are really great idea men, but without having like a Brian Epstein in their corner, it becomes a lot harder to logistically make this stuff a reality. I mean, listen, they made plenty of stuff for reality after Brian passed away, but still. In the end, there was a compromise. 
Having begun work at Twickenham, the Beatles relocated to a makeshift studio in the basement of 3 Savile Row, the center London address that was the home of their company, Apple. So in 1968, as they're doing the White Album, a double album, they also decide they're going to open up their own business called Apple. And it's going to be this multifaceted, you know, multimedia extravaganza that helps artists and they're, you know, they're going to be in the garment business and they have an electronics division. They have this guy, Magic Alex, this Greek guy who's building them a, a, a special recording studio. And of course, he was a quack and a, just a, a clinger on who, who really took them for a ride. And, you know, they spent a lot of money on that dude's stuff. And they had all, they had a wacky, you know, avant-garde music label called Zapple within Apple. That was a sub-thing of Apple. And basically, they're signing on acts, you know, Jackie Lomax, uh, Billy Preston, um, uh, who's a, Jackie Lomax does Sour Milk Sea, uh, the Ivies, who would later become Badfinger, and and ter- you know that would end terribly. But they they used the song by Paul McCartney, "Come and Get It," brilliant song. A shame that the Beatles never properly recorded it. He gives gave that away to the Ivies. I mean, they were really getting into you know they were they they were really trying to expand, and it lasted all of a year, really, before they just they went out. Everything went out of business, but this is this is the address that that is the home of the company uh, Apple. The plan, and and they, you know they go out of business because they just end up hemorrhaging money. They can't make any money. Uh, the the business is fueled on a lot of '60s idealism for the time, and it just it wasn't you know viable for you know a capital capitalist market. Because as, as you know, as radical as the Beatles thought they were, as benevolent as the Beatles wanted to be, they were still a part of, and their money and success was predicated on a capitalistic system. Um, the plan for the televised concert was abandoned, and it was agreed just about that the group were now being filmed for a feature-length documentary. So the TV show is out, and the rehearsal, you know, all that stuff is out. And on the third on Thursday, uh, the 30th of January, the four of them, joined by the American keyboard player and singer Billy Preston, who had actually met them uh, all the way back in 1963 when Billy was 16, young guy, uh, who was the only artist ever to have a co-credit with the Beatles. It was the Beatles and Billy Preston for uh, God. What was it? Was it "Don't Let Me Down" or it was one of those songs? I forget. Um, for one of the Beatles' final singles. Um, he played with a mixture of panache and joyous energy on the Apple Building's roof. He was brought in by George Harrison, who wanted to sort of, you know, ease tensions. I mean, that's a known thing. The reason why Billy Preston is there is because of all the friction. You know, he's there to, like, sort of melt melt some of the friction between them all. There was even talk about making him a permanent member at one point. They're kind of, like, auditioning him. You know, to bring in this this guy. Could you imagine? There's there's an alternate reality where the Beatles don't break up in 1970, but perhaps they break up when John Lennon dies in 1980, and they spend the next 10 years with Billy Preston putting out stuff. You know, uh, no one knew it was their last public performance, but in retrospect, they ensured that such a significant moment passed off almost perfectly. So even they didn't know it was going to be their last public performance, but they treated it with, you know, um, they, 
they passed it off perfectly. They wanted it to be, you know, legendary uh, for the film. Such was the finale of four weeks of filming and recording that eventually resulted in an 80-minute feature-length film titled Let It Be and the album of the same name. What remained in the Beatles' vaults, although some of it subsequently fell into the hands of bootleggers, a lot of it fell into the hands of bootleggers. I have a lot of that material. I mean, there are some bootlegs, it's just like Nagra number 37, you know, uh, was 50 additional hours of rushes and more uh, and more than twice as much as audio. I think it's 137 hours of audio and 50 hours of footage, brimming with an immense sense of who they were and how they worked. So, I mean, that's the thing. We talk and talk and talk and talk and act like, you know, we, we act on the authority of what insiders have told us and what we've, you know, uh, seen and read and listened to. But at the end of the day, 50 hours of rushes probably speak better than any of, or speak with just as much weight as any of that other stuff. So even if George and John did have a come to fisticuffs, you know, they're, they're still saying, oh, no, this is a great time. This is a good time. You know, but you don't hear about fisticuffs during Revolver or, you know, Rubber Soul. Uh, eventually, in preparation for Let It Be's 50th anniversary, most of this material was collected together. In 2017, Apple recruited the New Zealand-based director Peter Jackson, the creator of the six film versions of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, as well as the documentary They Shall Not Grow Old. Now, that's a brilliant documentary. We've talked about it on this channel before. It's about World War One and the technology that he developed in order to basically restore and preserve the, these reels and reels and reels of film from the First World War and build this narrative being told by the people who were there who have literally, some of them been dead for over a hundred years, is quite the feat. If anybody could tackle a Beatles documentary, it's going to be Peter Jackson, right? Um, so he's asked to uh, cut a new feature-length film. As it eventually turned out, the pandemic made a normal theatrical release impossible and opened up the possibility of something even more ambitious. Jackson ended up creating three two-hour documentaries, which will premiere at the end of November on the streaming platform Disney+, and will truly set the tone for how we talk about this moment in the Beatles' history forevermore. Um, and these three six uh, these three two hour films making a total six hour running time is actually taken down from an eighteen hour cut of this documentary. Could you imagine that eighteen hours? As Jackson puts it. <laughs> His new film tells the story of the Beatles planning for a concert that never takes place, and a concert that does take place which wasn't planned. Thanks to his and his team's restoration work, everything is pin-sharp and unbelievably invocative of the time and place. The tale unfolds in the London of Tribly hats, Austin Powers-esque fashions, and copious cigarette smoke. But the film's key attribute is their intimacy and the light they shine on the Beatles' instinctive creativity, their deep personal bonds as they near their final split 
and their thoughts about the future. Because the Beatles still had thoughts about the future, even after Abbey Road is finished. As everybody knows, Let It Be predates Abbey Road, if you're a casual Beatles person who doesn't know anything about the Beatles. Uh, you know, even though Abbey Road came out first, it was the last stuff that they recorded. I mean, they were recording stuff for the Let It Be project all the way into 1970. But by that time, John Lennon was out of the band, as we mentioned back in September of 1969. So what you had was, you had the Threedles. And the Threedles are Ringo, George, and Paul. And there are tons of tracks. You know, the Let It Be album, apart from the stuff that John Lennon plays on, John Lennon is not on George George Harrison's stuff. George Harrison has three songs on Let It Be, man. My... <laughs> Jody's in the house. What's up, Jody? Back like I never left. Jeff, you legend, you. Love the vacuum fan vid. Laugh too hard. Yeah, I thought that was so funny. We just got that vacuum. I'm going to stay on topic, Jody. But yes, I thought that was a funny moment. Funny moment, indeed. Thanks for bringing it up. Go check out that video on my channel. But basically, what are we talking about here? Um... They are, you know, for people who are like, whoa, the Beatles were the Threedles in 1994 when they were doing the the Beatles anthology project, when in reality, they were the Threedles back in 1970. Nobody really thinks about that. Like, for instance, you know, and this goes back to, you know, some of the tension that was there between George and John, despite the fact that they were very soon to team up against Paul over the management thing and have that civil war. I Me Mine was properly recorded in the studio and put out on Let It Be simply because when they were doing rehearsals for I Me Mine, George is showing everybody the song, and instead of Lennon, Lennon, instead of trying to like figure out how or what or who or where, you know, to sort of like add to the piece, the the music, he picks up Yoko. They start waltzing in the middle of the the, the floor. It's actually a very passive-aggressive moment. We talked about it last time as well. And it made the final cut of the film. Because it's in the final cut of the film, they needed a, a studio version of I, Me, Mine to to mirror that. So that's where that ends up coming from. You know what I mean? Um, so there's definitely... It's not, it's not all sugar plum fairies. You know, sugar plum fairy, sugar plum fairy... Uh, and you have them, they're working on this project uh, all the way through uh, 1970. Um, but yeah, I suspect we're going to see, as this article is saying, I'm sure we're going to see a lot of the what made the Beatles so successful, which was the chemistry, right? The Beatles had phenomenal chemistry, and that allowed them to do the work that they did. The three-part documentary series is titled Get Back which is the original title, as we said, and forms the central part of a huge new project that is also that also includes an expansive package of music and a book. The latter features photographs by Linda McCartney, who was there at the time in the studio around, you know, the boys taking photographs. She was a photographer. And Let It Be's on-set photographer, as it says there. Uh, Ethan Russell was the on-set photographer for Let It Be. And detailed transcripts of the Beatles' often candid conversations, which it still amazes me to say I was given the job of editing down from raw material made up of hundreds of thousands of words. 
and about 120 hours of audio. That's incredible to think about. So this guy, you know, whatever he's saying now, in a way, he's probably just as much of an authority as anybody. He essentially is a fly on the wall for these events that happened 50 years ago, which none of us have seen. You know, we can go on and on and on about being Beatle aficionados. I feel like a Beatles aficionado. But at the end of the day, we've re- all we've done is just read books. This guy is actually, you know, and we've listened to bootlegs and stuff. This guy has been steeped in hours and hours, 50 hours of video and 137 hours of audio, you know. Um, for someone who had been a passionate Beatles fan since the age of about eight, it was a dream job. Circa 1981, Let It Be was the first Beatles album I ever bought on a family holiday in Yorkshire. When I recently spoke to Jackson, Peter Jackson, something he said got to the heart of what an amazing project this was. To have intimate, behind-the-scenes, fly-on-the-wall coverage of the recording of an album from a band in the 60s is one thing, but the fact that it's the Beatles is mind-blowing, really. That really is mind-blowing when you think about it. In September 1968, Michael Lindsay Hogg, by the way, uh, is the illegitimate son of Orson Welles. Uh, uh, He's a one-time director of the trailblazing TV pop show Ready, Steady, Go, uh, gathered the Beatles at Twickenham to film a promotional video for Hey Jude. That's what, remember, we were talking about how Hey Jude would come out and they sold three million copies of it. It was a big, big deal. There's that video you see on on YouTube. That was filmed by Michael Lindsay Hogg in front of a small crowd that joined them for the songs Nah... Na, 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 ending. Between takes, they spontaneously played rock and roll standards and were reminded of the pleasures of performing for an audience. By late autumn, in the wake of the completion of the so-called White Album, this realization had flowered into a plan for the Beatles' first proper concert series, um, since August of 1966, the last place the Beatles ever played was Chicago. And it would largely be made up of completely new songs. So not only did they want to do their first live show in a really, really, really long time, the plan was let's have a brand new batch of songs and premiere them for a live audience, which is a really exciting concept that we've not really seen since. Um, Lindsay Hogg and his crew would film rehearsals for an appetite wedding half hour TV film before the cameras captured the Beatles' climatic performance at an undecided location, which would then be broadcast around the world. A great plan, and makes perfect sense after finishing Abbey Road, after the failure of Magical Mystery Tour, after peaking with Sgt. Pepper. This is a great way for them to sort of ease back into playing live music, which is something that, you know, had been, they had been missing, clearly. You know, they as I said, they'd become a studio-only band. Um, what then happened, as the concert idea shrank and the group took a default option of making another album, has been routinely portrayed at, uh, as an all-time low. So people have always said this was like when the Beatles were at their lowest. And, you know, there's no confidence in the material that they've laid down on tape. John Lennon has always said, you know, give the tapes to Phil Spector, see if he can make sense of them. And Phil Spector would give, you know, put his shellac on with the wall of sound, 
much to the dismay of Paul McCartney, especially on the song Long and Winding Road. And long after John is, is gone and even George is gone, George and John are gone, and Phil Spector is in jail, and it's just Ringo and Paul, uh, they put out Let It Be Naked, which strips away all of Phil Spector's production, which had irked McCartney forever. Um, although I love that production. I mean, that's part of the, It's an iconic record, and it's part of that iconic... I, icon, iconity. That's not a word. I just made it up. Uh, read the accounts of this period in any number of Beatles books, and you will find words such as crisis, nadir, and impasse in abundance. Be- yes, you will. And it's true. I mean, that's, that's the truth. Uh, during this time when his interviews were often full of seething resentment, Lennon, who was accompanied throughout the sessions by Yoko Ono, added a quotation to Beatles lore that has long stuck to this period. Even the biggest Beatles fan couldn't have sat through those six weeks of misery. It was the most miserable session on earth. And that is, that is, that's, that's Lennon speaking from a resentful, acerbic, you know, um, hyper, hyperbolic place. McCartney, whose take on this period has always been a bit more measured, said that Let It Be showed how the breakup of a group works. So, you know, all of a sudden, now 50 years on, in the twilight years of Lenin, of uh, McCartney and Starr's lives, they're going, how do, we, how do we secure our legacy and put it to bed? This is how we do it. We, we take it, the footage out of the vaults, we show you what it was really like, and we put all the, you know, conjecture to bed and recontextualize what this period was for us, and that it was a positive thing, it wasn't a, a negative thing. We ended on a good note, not a bad note. Um, you know, it says, Lennon, who was accompanied throughout the sessions by Yoko, oh no, that was another thing about Yoko. Yoko was also creating turmoil between the boys by showing up in places where no Beatles wife or girlfriend had ever been inside their, their sacred inner sanctum that was the studio. Um... When fame reaches a certain point, facts blur into mythology and received opinion. This is also true. Great point. Great point, even though I don't want to agree with it, but that is, that's, yes, that's totally right. And in Let It Be's case, the film's reputation as a story of endless misery and strife was partly due to its timing. The original movie was released over a year after it was filmed in May of 1970, only a month after McCartney had confirmed that the Beatles had broken up. And it was there in May of 1970. Um, and it was therefore... Ooh, uh, I just lost my place. And was therefore received as a portrait of a group in its death throes. As the ensuing years went by, in the absence of official re-release on DVD, because, you know, they, they buried it. The Paul and, and George and Ringo, for years and years and years, after... John had passed away. They didn't want it. They didn't want it there. They didn't want people to see what was the thing. And so you could only get it on VHS or bootleg. The fact that most Beatles fans only saw murky third and fourth generation versions had hardly helped. Um, When the new documentary series book and audio... What the new documentary series book and audio reveal is something much more nuanced and complicated. 
you know, there, I, that I agree with, man. That makes sense to me. It's something that is much more nuanced and complicated. It's not black and white, clearly. There, because as we said, despite all the business stuff and the relationships breaking down, when they're in the studio, the musical bonds are still there, they're still tight. Even though now, you know, John and Paul are essentially writing separately, and George is competing with his own songs, and John's not playing on any of George's songs, and Paul is condescending to George, and both John and George are annoyed with Paul because he's so prolific, you know, he's got his 10 songs ready, and now we all want, you know, it's time to go to the studio, and we're, we're, we're just trying to catch up. Um, but I do agree, it is, it is nuanced and complicated. In hindsight, the Beatles were indeed moving towards their end. Many of the tensions fed into their split are clearer. Their divisions over returning to... Oh, this just changed on me. Uh, their divisions over returning to live performance, Harrison's growing confidence and the dissatisfaction that came with it, the unease and bafflement sown by Ono's arrival right at the group's core. Uh, right at the group's core. But the business tensions that would decisively divide them had yet to explode. It, it was still there, man. It had already started, man. That's when, that's when Klein was in the picture. Klein was in the picture, and he's whispering in John's ear, and Paul doesn't like it. Um, <clears throat> in early '69, saw them still creating wondrous music and largely getting on very well. They were creating wondrous music all the way until August of 1969 when they when they tracked I Want You, She's So Heavy. That's the last time the four of them would be in a studio together. And then the Threedles, you know, combinations would take over. Never again would all four Beatles be in the studio space together, but you would have, you know, uh, John, George, and Ringo, or John, Paul, and... Uh, Ringo or Paul, George, and Ringo. Like, there was never a, a time where they were all together at the same time. Um, this is the central revelation of the Get Back Project. After Jackson had begun work on the rushes, I was approached by, uh, by Apple executive Jonathan Clyde about writing an accompanying book. He told me about the long hours of onset conversation and creativity that had been captured on two constantly whirling tape recorders. So these tape recorders never stopped recording. The, that's why there's 50 hours of, of visual and there's 137 hours of, of, of audio. So it was going for almost three times. It, it, was, it was recording three times as long as, as, the, as the visual part of things. <clears throat> um, some of this stuff had been reproduced in a book that came with initial pressings of the Let It Be album put together by the American producer Phil Spector back in 1970 now the idea was to come up with something altogether more exhaustive and definitive um, over the next weeks and months I took delivery of 21 spiral bound books of meticulous transcripts and was given access to all of the audio recordings. I was also loaned an iPad by Apple, which contained just about all the restored rushes 
a magic box of revelations that filled in many gaps, allowing me to understand the nuances of dialogue via facial expressions and watch scenes that had no accompanying audio. Editing down such a mountain of raw material into a 50,000-word text, around half of which reproduces material that isn't even in the new films, was a lengthy process, but every day delivered surprises and pleasures. Um, a lot of this centered on how the Beatles made music. Contrary to myth, they were still closely collaborating. Uh, yes, I mean that's not that's never that that's never been disputed. That we always knew that. A point illustrated by a sequence in which Harrison asked the others for help on a love song that he has been working on for months, soon to be titled something. He was struck on this new song's second. He was stuck on the new song's second line. Harrison, what could it be, Paul? It's like I think of what attracted me and all, Lenin. Just say whatever comes into your head each time. Attracts me like a cauliflower until you get the word, you know. Harrison, yeah, I've been through this one for about six months, Lenin. You've had fifteen people joining in though. Harrison, no, I just mean that line. I couldn't think of anything like a dot dot dot. John sings. Something in the way she moves, attracts, grabs, instead of attracts, George. But it's not as easy to say. Lennon grabs me like a southern honky-tonk. Harrison and Lennon. Something in the way she moves me, and la 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 la. Lennon grabs me like a monkey on a tree. Lennon and Harrison singing. Something in the way she moves, and all I have to do is think of her. Something in the way she shows, Harrison sings, uh, attracts me like a pomegranate. We could have that. Attracts me like a pomegranate, Lennon and Harrison. Something in the way she moves, attacks me like a moth to granite. Pomegranate, cauliflower. The day before, Harrison, I mean, so, like, yeah, cool, great. But again, at the same time, you have Lennon just like not wanting to play on any of Harrison's material. Harrison plays on all of Lennon's songs, but Lennon doesn't play on any of Harrison's songs. So, I, like, again, I feel like there is a little bit of like, not gaslighting, but like they're really trying to spin this narrative based on some unseen stuff. But I don't think it still doesn't counter what we factually know about this time. The day before, Harrison had arrived at Apple dressed in a dazzling white and purple suit, sat at the piano, and premiered another new song. If you want an instant antidote to the idea that the Let It Be sessions were thoroughly miserable and rancorous, what followed is perfect. So we, it's, I, don't, I don't think anybody thinks they were altogether miserable and rancorous because we know, based on the bootlegs we have, we know that they were jamming on stuff and working on stuff, but it was not, it was a tense time. There was tension there. There was clearly tension. And it would, you know, the rift would really, really, you know, form a deep cut that could never be healed when the civil war over management begins between Paul and the rest of the guys. McCartney, how are you? Harrison, oh, I went to bed very late. I wrote a great song, actually, enthusiastically. Happy and a rocket. Happy and a rocker, Lennon. It's such a high when you get home. 
I'm just so high when I get it at night. Granite, yeah, isn't it great? Yeah, great, isn't it? Uh, Lennon, I was just sitting there listening to the late, the last takes. No, that's not a good one. I was just sitting there listening to the last takes. What have I had? What have I had today? You know, I asked her. Oh, no. Have we had anything? Oh, no. You're just high in general. John, just want to... Whoa! I just can't sleep. Harrison, I keep thinking, oh, I'll just go to bed now. And then I keep hearing your voice from about ten years ago saying, finish the song straight away as soon as you start them. You finish them. You once told me. Lennon, oh, the song, but I never knew it. I can't do the... I can't do the, the interpretation. I can't do the... Ugh, it's tiring. <clears throat> but I know it's the best. McCartney to Harrison. Well, what's it called? <laughs> George, I've, I've no title. I've no title. Maybe you can see a title in it somewhere. Uh, the Beatles, they, they talk so whimsically. He then played Old Brown Shoe, which would appear on the B-side of the Ballad of John and Yoko. McCartney gamely joined in on drums, and then a guitar he played upside down. Billy Preston played bass. See, at that time, like, the personnel, like the classic Beatles lineup, like, Paul plays bass, George plays guitar, John plays guitar, Ringo plays John, everything just sort of shifts. And that really began, I think, as early as Sgt. Pepper, really. Maybe even uh, Revolver. And most certainly on the White Album. Um, later that same day, the five of them record a superb version of Get Back, the roller coaster piece of rock and roll that was argue, arguably this period's defining song. This is so good. This is so great, enthused Glenn Johns. He was like the producer when George Martin was out of the mix now and, and, and Glenn Johns was, was, was in for, for Let It... I mean, they changed everything. They're not working at Abbey Road. They're not working with George Martin. They're doing a brand new set of songs. It's it, They have cameras on them. It's a different scene. Of course they're going to like negatively feel bad about it. And it's easy, too, to look back on the footage and be like, oh, no, it was actually really positive because, I don't know. When George Martin, their usual producer paid the sessions one of many visits, he was even happier. You're working so well together. You look at each other. You're seeing each other. You're just happening. Music was pouring out of them. Not just the best songs that would be performed in Let It Be Film, the title track, Get Back, The Long and Winding Road, Two of Us, and Don't Let Me Down, but a big chunk of Abbey Road and other creations destined for their solos. That's right. Teddy Boy, Junk, Octopus's Garden, I mean, all of these, all, all things must pass, all of this stuff is being played during the Get Back, Let It Be sessions. In between the music came endless conversations about their distant history in Liverpool and Hamburg, what they would have for lunch. One Harrison favorite was Big Fresh Uncut Mushrooms and their hangover star, I wouldn't lie, I'm not too good. They habitually discussed what had been on TV the previous night from Peter Cook, clashing with Zaza Gabor to BBC's two science fiction and talked about politics as evidenced by send by a send up of the demagogic politician Enoch Powell and a heartfelt conversation about Martin Luther King. 
Uh, they were also hundreds of mentions of other musicians. Fleetwood Mac, Frank Sinatra, Bob Dylan, the band, Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin. It's amazing when you think about it. Crazy White Boy's in the house, and he says Day Tripper is his ish. Um, Jody says, 35 years ago we lost the legendary Major... Major Rager on the fourth string. Cliff Burton, may he rest in peace. We throw up devil horns to Cliff. For without, the Misfits may not have been as well known. The Beatles also talked about something much more dramatic. The prospect of their own split. So they were talking about it even during that time. And the tensions that sometimes flared up as the cameras rolled. Because there were. A lot of these ruminations happened just after Harrison's walkout, crisply, crisply recorded in his diary. Got up, went to Twickenham, rehearsed until lunchtime, left the Beatles, but doesn't make mention of getting into a fistfight with John. In his absence, star McCartney and Lennon, who said that if Harrison didn't return, they could recruit Eric Clapton, which never would have worked and would have been ridiculous. Still, tr- just just to get just to get at George. That was just such like a jab. Such a typical Lennon sort of jab. That's what he That's what he did. Um, so they still turned up at Twickenham Film Studios anyway. Even if the group's sensitivities meant that he couldn't use the resulting material in Let It Be, Lindsay Hogg had the presence of mind to gently encourage that they talk about their internal relationships and when the group, and where the group might be going. He also surreptitiously uh, hit a microphone near the table in the studio canteen where Lennon, Ono, McCartney had lunch and recorded a remarkable conversation. On the audio I was given, it began suddenly and unexpectedly. Lennon, I mean, I'm not going to lie, you know. No, it's terrible, Lennon. Um, I mean, I'm not going to lie, you know. <clears throat> no, it's not a good Lennon. I can't do it right now. Can't do it. I'm thinking about it too much. I mean, <clears throat> I mean I'm mean, i not going to I'm not gonna lie, you know. No, I can't do it. I just can't. I'm not going to lie, you know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would sacrifice. He, he's basically saying, I'm not going to lie. I would sacrifice you all for her, Yoko Ono. She comes everywhere, you know. McCartney asks, so where's George? Lennon says, fuck knows what George is. Oh, no. Oh, you can get back George so easily. You know that. Lennon, but it's not that easy because it's a festering wound. And yesterday, we allowed it to go even deeper, and we didn't give him any bandages. McCartney says, see, I'm just assuming he's coming back, you know. I'm assuming he's coming back. Lennon, well, do you? McCartney, if he isn't, then he isn't. Then it's a new problem. Lennon, if we wanted him, I'm sure I'm still not sure whether I do want him. But if we do decide that we want him as policy, I can go along with that because the policy has kept us together. When Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, had died suddenly in the summer of 1967, it was McCartney who had quickly taken on, as I said earlier in this video, had quickly taken on the role of coming up with new ideas and instigating work in the studio. Thanks partially to Lennon's resulting resentments and being an acid casualty, uh, 
they received uh, the received view of Beale's history has tended to frame this aspects of the group uh, this aspect of the group's relationships in terms of McCartney's supposed bossiness. That's right, McCartney is widely considered to be a super bossy guy, and I've heard in the past that it's Maxwell Silverhammer that also really creates a big rift and breakdown with the Beatles. They just did, they just hated doing that song over and over and over again. And, you know, I'm sure McCartney could be bossy, man. Like, uh, you hear people talk about it. It, it makes sense. Uh, but what the films and book tend to show are very different qualities. Empathy, sensitivity. There is that conversation where they're talking about, you know, John and Yoko being together and that they're meant to be together and being very... Paul is very supportive of that. Now, does Paul know he's being recorded at the time? Who knows? If he does, then maybe there that that gives license as to a, you know a calculating measure as to why he's talking that way. But if he doesn't, then you know there, it speaks to these ideas that there were very different qualities: empathy, sensitivity, and the patience needed to get for increasingly, increasingly different people to move in roughly the same direction. That's the other thing, too. That's at the core of everything. As they're breaking up, um, you have four increasingly different people uh, trying to move in roughly the same direction. It's just not working anymore. Um, When there was a discussion about Ono's permanent new place at Lennon's side, McCartney cautioned against trying to get in the way. This is what I was talking about. I've heard this conversation. They're going overboard about it, but John always does, you know, and Yoko probably always does. So there's that. So that's the scene. You can't go saying, don't go overboard about this thing. Be sensible about it and don't bring her to meetings. It's his decision that. It's none of our business starting to interfere in that. He was very sensitive and supportive. And you hear it, but you don't know if he's being recorded at the time. That definitely influences the way I see and interpret why he's saying these things. Um, He also had a persistent sense of how future historians would understand the Beatles' breakup. It's going to be such an incredible sort of comical thing in like 50 years' time. They broke up because Yoko sat on an amp. Or just something like that. What? Well, you see, John kept bringing this girl along. What? It's not as though there's any sort of earth-splitting rose or anything. But but, but that is how people saw it. I mean, he's literally calling it as it's happening. He, he shows a remarkable sense of self-awareness, which leads me to believe that he kind of knows that he's being recorded. He knows that this is how it's going to be received in the future. McCartney could also be assertive and blunt, something that happened early in the rehearsals at Twickenham, when the prospect of a big live show was starting to recede. You know, very famously, he told, you know, there used to be a guitar part for Hey Jude, when he's singing, Hey Jude, dun-dun-dun-dun, there's like a guitar answer riff that George had come up with, and Paul, very bluntly, was like, "Don't, don't play it, man, it doesn't work for the song. And he was right, but, you know, he, he, he let him know. He let him know. As far as I can see it, there are only two ways. The, as far as I can see it, there's a, as far as I can see it, there's only two ways, and that's what I was shouting about in the last meeting we had, he said. They used to record their meetings, too. We were going to do it, or we're not going to do it, and I want a decision. 
because I'm not interested enough to speak my fucking days, to spend my fucking days farting around here while everyone makes up their minds whether they want to do it or not, you know? I'll do it, if everyone else will, and everyone else wants to do it, then all right, but, haha, you know, it's just a bit soft, it's like at school, you know, you gotta be there, you gotta be here, and I haven't, you know, I've left school, we've all left school, I remember that, I remember, I remember listening to that audio as well, um, hmm, through their, uh, though their split was initially hushed up, the Beatles would soon be no more. But in the meantime, they managed to surmount their differences. They didn't make it to Sabratha or the Royal Albert Hall or the Tate Gallery. Uh, but when they played on top of the Apple offices, the music and the spectacle they created made it a triumph. Glances passed between them, seemingly in recognition of how how great it all felt and sounded. You can see that in the video, for sure. Uh, and amid the mayhem on the street below, where two metropolitan police officers tried to shut everything down, the episode was injected with a lovely, rebellious romance. That's true, too. They rocked and rolled and connected as they had in years gone by friends again, Lindsay Hogg later wrote. It was beautiful to see. And I would say that's totally accurate of what you see on that footage. You can go watch it on YouTube if you want. Half a century later, we now know that it was not some fluke, but the end result of four weeks that, after a very shaky start, had gone much better, and that all those subsequent accounts uh, and that all those subsequent uh, subsequent accounts suggested something crystallized in a couplet Lennon added to a McCartney song, "I've Got a Feeling," in which they played twice on the roof. Everybody had a hard year, he sang in the January chill. Everybody had a good time. Um, I think in addition to the, well, I mean, ultimately we're not going to know until we watch the documentary and I will definitely do a follow up on this show once I've watched the documentary for sure. But I, I, I think it's important to sort of recognize that there's one authority, not authority, but there's one guy who's out there who is like the the beginning and end when it comes to Beatles experts. I mean, this guy knows the Beatles better than the Beatles know the Beatles because he's studied everything. He's listened to every studio recording. He's heard all this stuff. And that is uh, Lewinson. Uh, what's his name? Mark Lewinson. He is like the uh, Beatles historian supreme. And he, it took him like 10 or 12 years to write the first of three volumes. He started... Uh, no, sorry, it was it was about eight years. Started in 2005, he didn't finish until 2013. That's when the first book came out. And now it's uh, we're going on almost 10 years. It's been about eight years since Tune In, the first volume of Tune In turned, uh, came in. Now he's writing the second volume, and then he'll finish with the third volume. A lot of people are afraid that he, he won't live, that they're, they're afraid that there's going to be a George R.R. R. Martin sort of situation uh, with him. But he's just so meticulous and accurate with his, his research um, whatever that guy thinks about the let it be situation, that's that's where I that's where I put my chips because he really knows his stuff. Um, go check out Mark Lewinson's book, uh, Tune In, all those years ago, which covers the Beatles from the beginning all the way up till 1961, and it's almost a thousand pages long, and that's just till 1961. 
So who knows what the, the, the middle volume is going to look like and the end volume. It's going to be insane. Um, did you enjoy this show? If so, please let me know. Please make sure to subscribe, number one. Please subscribe to this channel if you enjoyed this conversation. Number two, uh, please like this video. Number three, please leave a comment if you can. Number four, uh, check out the Patreon. We have a Patreon thing going on. Um, just check out the video. And number five, if you're not a fan of Patreon, uh, join our membership here on YouTube. Uh, if you wish. Uh, lots and lots of sort of stuff. Um, Jody, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks for sticking through the whole thing. You have a, you have a wonderful, wonderful night. We might be back tomorrow. Definitely will be back Wednesday and Thursday. We have another episode of Sinful Celluloid. Until then, you know me. My name is Jeff. We say peace and hair grease again. Make sure you subscribe, and we're going to end this thing.